We're going to continue our study in Matthew, be in Matthew chapter 12. Little context uh, for those of you that maybe missed a week or um, those of you that this is your first time. We see Jesus goes from the end of Matthew chapter 11, that's where he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And he's speaking of the law uh, specifically, but there was a lot that we talked about in regards to that. He goes right from that into uh, this story of the disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. And what he does, he uses this encounter with the Pharisees to teach them the heart behind the Sabbath. See, we discussed in previous weeks that Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. And we get that from Hebrews chapter 4. So what Jesus is doing, he's trying to communicate God's heart behind the law, but specifically as it pertains to the Sabbath. All right, then we see him uh, have this other encounter on a different Sabbath with this man with the withered hand, and he heals this man with the withered hand, which was unlawful according to the Pharisees. And Jesus says, it is, is it unlawful to do what is good on the Sabbath? Is it unlawful to help people on the Sabbath? God's heart is that you would do good on the Sabbath, not that you would prevent a man from being healed. And Jesus heals that man. See, what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to get to the heart of the Pharisees. He's trying to allow them to understand that their hearts don't align with God's heart. And God, the reason that he gave them the Sabbath was so that they could have rest, not to add a greater burden on the people. But what the Pharisees did was because they're legalists, they created all these man-made laws to put a heavier burden on the people. So the Sabbath, it was no longer something to be looked forward to. It was something that they're like, oh man, here comes another Sabbath. So then after that, we see Jesus leave the synagogue, which was essentially the church in that day. And these, this multitude follows him while he's trying to withdraw, while he's trying to get away. And we talked about how Jesus does church outside the church. How church isn't just a place, it's not just an event that we go to, it's a lifestyle. And Jesus, he engages with those multitudes and he actually heals all of them. Not just one of them, not just two of them, he heals every single one of them, which was very rare in the Gospels. We don't see that happen very often. Then Matthew talks about this scripture that he sees. Jesus fulfills this Isaiah 42 scripture that speaks of him the chosen servant of the Lord. And he goes in to speak of the character of Jesus Christ there in Matthew chapter 12, verses uh, 15 to 21. And that was the last um, Sunday service that we discussed that we talked about the character of Christ and how we can, as believers, as sons and daughters of God, choose to be like the epitome of what it means to be a child of God and following Jesus Christ and being choosing to be like Jesus. Now, <laughs> after all that, um, in Matthew chapter 12, we're going to see this character of Jesus continue to be portrayed, but not just to the multitudes that were coming to him for healing. We're going to see some of these character attributes displayed to the Pharisees. See, he's trying to get the message across to the Pharisees that he's the real deal, that he's the Messiah, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's really interesting the way that he does it in this text. He's going to, I'll summarize it and then we'll dive in. He's going to heal a demon-possessed man that's blind and mute. And then he's going to have this logical argument against the Pharisees because the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by the work of Satan. So, it's ridiculous, I know, I know, these Pharisees. So he, he's going to speak truth to them, because what he's trying to do is speak truth into their minds so that it affects their hearts, and then later on in the text he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The reason you're speaking these evil things about me is because your heart's wicked, because the things you're meditating on our lies and not the truth. There are lies about me and not the truth about me. So that's summarizing it. We'll dive into the text. You'll understand better. But I had to explain that to get to our title of the message, which is from the mind to the heart to the mouth. 
from the mind to the heart to the mouth. This is the strategy that Jesus uses in this specific setting to reach the Pharisees and meet them where they're at because Jesus had love for the Pharisees. He wanted them to recognize who he truly was. So if you'll look with me in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, it says, Then one was brought to him, brought to Jesus, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. Now let's look at this. This man is blind and mute, and it's a result of him being demon-possessed. The demon possession of this man caused him to be blind and mute. And this is such a work of the enemy. See, the enemy, he desires us to be blind to the truth of the gospel. And if we're blind to the truth of the gospel, we're not going to speak about the gospel. What do I mean? If you flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 we see this is a strategy of the enemy. And we're going to look how Jesus battles against this specific strategy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, like you can't see it, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. That's what the enemy's trying to do. He's trying to blind people from seeing the truth of who Jesus is. And what he does specifically is he blinds the mind to blind the heart. That brings me to the first point. I'll explain further. The enemy blinds the mind to blind the heart. If the enemy can blind us to the truth of the gospel and we don't receive the truth of the gospel, our hearts are never going to change. They're never going to be transformed. Now that's basically for the unbeliever, those who are veiled and haven't received the truth of the gospel, but it applies to us as believers as well. See, the enemy tries to convince us to believe all kinds of lies, he tries to convince us to believe all kinds of lies because if we believe lies, it's going to prevent the transform, transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Now look what happens to this man. You'll understand this as we unpack it further. Okay? It says, and he did heal this man. He healed the blind man. The, he healed this man so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. See, that's Jesus' heart for each and every one of us, that he would tear the veil, that we would see the truth of who he is. Because if we see the truth of who he is, we won't be able to help but speak of the things that we've seen and heard. When the veil is lifted, when we see the glory of Jesus Christ, the very thing that the enemy is trying to prevent us from, when we see who Jesus really is standing before us, not only can we now see, but we can't help but speak. That's exactly what John and Peter say in Acts chapter 4, verse 20, when he's brought before the similar type of people, scribes, Pharisees, specifically the Sanhedrin. They say, we don't want you to speak the name of Jesus anymore. They say, hey, uh, well, whether you be the judge or God be the judge, whatever's right, let God be the judge. As for us, we can't help but speak of the things that we've seen and heard. Because once we see, we won't be able to help but speak. So this specific man, Jesus, he reveals the truth of who he is, not only so that he can see, but that he can speak about the truth of who he is. And it's so interesting because he's going to go from this to this dialogue with the Pharisees, because this is the problem with the Pharisees. They don't see the truth of who Jesus is. So the things that they speak about are lies about Jesus. They might as well be mute. Jesus wants to pierce their minds to the truth of the gospel, the truth of his identity, the truth of who he is, so that when they open their mouth, they'll speak 
about the truth of who he is, that they'll preach the gospel. We see him do this to a specific Pharisee. If you remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus Uh, He comes to Jesus late at night so all of his other Pharisee friends don't see what he's doing because he's curious. The Lord's doing something in his heart. So he asked Jesus, you know, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God or to have eternal life? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And he has this dialogue with Nicodemus and he explains it to Nicodemus in such a way that I'll understand Okay, and Nicodemus was a little confused. What do you mean? I need to come out of my, bro- my mother's womb, yada, yada, yada. But he talks to him long enough so that Nicodemus understands the truth about who Jesus is. And look what Nicodemus does here in John chapter 7. The truth pierces his mind, affects his heart, and we see it come out of his mouth later in John chapter 7, verse... 50 says Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night being one of them said to them does your law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing this is Nicodemus speaking to his other Pharisee friends now now he's speaking up for Jesus because he just had this encounter with Jesus his heart's changed about who Jesus really is and now he's speaking out about Jesus while all the other Pharisees are still plotting how they might destroy him And then verse 51, it says, Does your law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. The point is, Jesus has this dialogue with Nicodemus to change his perspective, to change his mind about who Jesus is. That transforms his heart, and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We see Nicodemus, after this encounter, sticking up for Jesus. Now, this is Jesus' heart for all the Pharisees that he's going to encounter. He wants them to get the point. He wants them to understand that that the gospel is very logical, that who he is, it makes sense when you look at what he does. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 23, it says, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? The multitudes are amazed. They're astonished. They see this transforming work of the Messiah. Is this the son of David? Because I've never seen anything like this. They're amazed. They're astonished. The Pharisees, they're distraught. They're out to destroy Jesus in the ministry that he's doing. But I want to focus on this multitude real quick. See, this work and this man that was blind and mute, it was undeniable. A miracle occurred in his life. He was healed. He was completely transformed. Okay, he couldn't speak. He couldn't see. And in an instant, in a moment, he's completely different. What is? They're amazed. They're astonished. Dude, something happened here. God did something. Is this the son of David? The multitudes are amazed. That's what the Lord desires to do in each of our lives. He tries to do such a great transforming healing work in our life that the multitudes marvel, that they're amazed, that they look at us and they're like, dude, I know who that guy used to be. I know who that girl used to be and they're different. They're not the same. I'm marveling. Who did that? Because that's not just the work of man. That's the work of God. See, our healing is God's revealing truth. He uses our healing to reveal the truth about who he is. And how many of you have been saved, have given your lives to the Lord because you saw a transforming work in someone else's life? Maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a family member. You're like, dude, I know that that's just not church that's happening in their life. Like, they're different, they're changed, they're not the same person. See, that was the case for me and, and, and many of my family members They saw who I was, who I became, the transformation that happened, and they marveled. And they said, dude, this isn't the same person. Something happened. God has done a healing, transforming work. My brother ended up getting saved. My dad ended up getting saved. My whole household saved. And my grandpa, I was doing a message the other uh, Wednesday when Abraham in Genesis, he's praying for Sodom and Gomorrah, specifically for his family member, Lot. 
and Lot's family that's there. And he's praying to God and he goes back and forth. And I was thinking about my grandpa and how I stopped. I hadn't been praying for him like I was. Long story short, I kept praying for him daily. I keep praying for him daily. And I reached out to him a couple weeks ago. And I was talking to him and I got all emotional. He probably could barely understand what I was saying. Um, And he's like, hey, I know that God did something. He answered prayer. See, my grandfather, he almost died of heart failure. He had a 2% chance of living and he knew that people were praying for him. He knew that God healed him. He just didn't know which God it was. It's like, I know people are praying. I got Mormon cousins and I got... Like I got all the whole, the whole deal. He's like, I know God answered this prayer and he healed me. I just don't know which God this is. So I was like, hey, I got teachings on CDs. Can I start sending you the truth about which God healed you? He's like, please do send them all to me. So I sent him to him. He's been listening to him. The Lord's been working on his heart. Now he hasn't accepted the Lord yet, but my mom, my dad were over there and they were listening to some of the sermons with them. And he's like, oh my gosh, who is this guy? Where did he get his vocabulary? My mom's like, yeah, you got it for me. (laughs) But in all sincerity, the last time that I was at his house was over five years ago, and I was strung out on drugs. But now he knows this transforming healing work has happened in his life, and it's opened him up to be receptive to the truth of who Jesus is. And that's what's happening to the multitudes. They're amazed. They're astonished. At what happened? Could this be the Son of God? Now look, the, look at the Pharisees in verse 24. It says, Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub, uh, another name for Satan, Lord of the flies. They're saying, they're not denying that a work took place. They're admitting a miracle took place. You couldn't deny it. The man was blind and mute, and now he's not. But they're denying the source of power behind the work. They're attributing the work to Satan. They can no longer say that Jesus can't do this or his words aren't powerful or this or that. Remember, they're plotting to destroy him. So they're finding any and every reason they can to come against him. Their hearts are hardened in disbelief of who he is and they'll do whatever they can to make sure that Jesus gets taken out in the ministry that he started here on earth. So the multitudes, they respond in amazement. The, the, the Pharisees, they respond with these beliefs that Jesus is doing these powerful works by the work of Satan. They can't deny the miracle. They can only deny the source of the power behind the miracle. And isn't this the case so often with so many Pharisees or even unbelievers? It's like that transforming work has happened in your life and they see, yeah, change has happened, but it's just because you've been going to church. It's just because you've changed your lifestyle a little bit. You've changed some habits. Yeah, you found religion. That's good. Anybody ever hear that from someone? Oh, you found religion. Good, good job. No, this isn't religion. Jesus is battling against religion right now. This is about relationship with the Lord and only through that relationship can that transforming work take place. But that's the heart of a Pharisee. They'll think of any and every way to discredit, discredit the power and work of Jesus in your life. The argument that they make is ridiculous. This is the power of Satan. But what Jesus is going to combat them with in the specific argument that he uses, I want to read uh, these next few verses from 25 to 29. I'll just read it, and then we'll break it down to understand it a little better. So, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? So look what Jesus does here. 
He's tried the heart thing. He's tried piercing right to the heart. So we know that the word of God is living and powerful. It gets right into the heart of the matter. And that's often the strategy of Jesus. But this time he takes it a different route. He says that their thinking is flawed. They're believing lies about me. So I'm going to address them in a logical way to explain how ridiculous and stupid their argument is. Their argument is absolutely ridiculous. So what Jesus does is he attacks the mind to penetrate the heart of the Pharisees. And this is a method of Jesus. Point number two, Jesus attacks the mind to reach the heart. Jesus attacks the mind to reach the heart. He makes this very logical argument of why the Pharisees' argument is absolutely ridiculous. But the reason so often Jesus attacks the mind to penetrate the heart is because he knows that the things that we think about, the things that we focus on, affect our hearts. So he goes for the mind. He tries to speak truth into our lives. It's Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. It says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also follow me, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You'll know what your treasure is by what you're thinking about, what you're focused on, what is valuable to you. What are you thinking about right now? The word of God, hopefully. Most of you are like locked in. This is a good one. I'm talking about you guys and your focus. It's great. So often, what we think about, not so often, all the time, what we think about affects our hearts. And you'll know what your treasure is, what you value by what you're thinking about. So if you're thinking about carnal, material things, selfish things, prideful things, your heart, it's going to be selfish. It's going to be materially based. It's going to be carnal. If you focus on spiritual things, if you meditate on the word of God day and night, like Psalm 1 said, if you think about it constantly, that's going to affect your heart. It's going to transform your heart. It gets back to what are you thinking about? Because the enemy, see, he attacks the mind to bind us in unbelief. But Jesus, he attacks the mind to give us the truth that sets us free. The enemy is trying to bind us in lies, even as believers. We could think, hey, wait, the veil's been torn. I've accepted Jesus. I have a relationship with Jesus, but I guarantee you every person in this room believes lies. There's things that we think are true there's things that we assume to be true based on our experiences or what we've walked through in our lives. But if it contradicts the word of God, then it's not true. Jesus gives us the word of God. He gives us the truth of the scriptures, not to bind us, not to put a burden on us, but to set us free. That's what he says in John chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. But you got to know that it's truth first. Because if you don't know that the truth is truth, then you're going to believe a lie. and You're not going to be free. You're going to be bound. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants you to believe lies so that you can be bound and so that you won't be free. And there's so many, belie- so many lies we can believe as believers. Um, simple ones like, I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be good enough for God. I'm not worthy, I'm not worth loving, God doesn't love me, God's not there for me, and not all the time, but we can fall into these ruts. See, it even pertains to sin in our lives. We can believe the lie from the enemy that sin, a little bit, it's okay. Just a little bit of sin, it's okay, it's not a big deal, just a little sin. Is it really gonna hurt? Just a little bit, just take one bite. And we can believe that lie. A little bit of sin, but we know James tells us sin, desire gives birth to sin. And sin has a goal when it matures, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. So that little lie that a little sin's okay, it's not. Jesus says it's not okay. Not that we're not all sinners, that's why we're here. 
but it doesn't mean that it's okay. We can believe the lie that, ah, oh, I'm married, but it's okay for me to look. It's okay for me to glance at another woman. No. What am I supposed to do? Like, these girls are walking around everywhere and I'm at the beach. What am I supposed to do? I have to look. It's like, that's a lie from the enemy. That's not a truth of scripture. Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. What about a, a boyfriend and a girlfriend before marriage living together or sleeping together? Hey, we're going to get married anyways. Marriage is just a ceremony in my heart. Like, I'm pretty much married to them. Like, we're going to get married. Everybody knows that that always works out, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, like pretty much between me and God, we're married. No, that's a lie from the enemy. It's not, it's not okay. It's not okay. And what that man is producing in that woman or girlfriend is rebellion against all the direction and laws of the Lord. And that will carry on into marriage and that will destroy and corrupt the marriage or laying a foundation of rebellion. And that's what the enemy did against God. That's what he wants to do in you. Lay a foundation. Just believe these lies. It'll lead you to rebel. And now you're on my team and not his. Picking it up in verse 26, it says, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against, against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? This is the first thing he says. If Satan casts out Satan, he's battling against himself. Okay, Satan might, might, might be evil. He might be prideful, but he's not an idiot. He's not ignorant. He's not gonna fight against himself. Why would Satan cast out the demons that are working for him, that fell with him? Logically, it doesn't make sense. What king takes out the people that are working for them unless those people are rebelling against him. So this is the first argument that he uses. And then in verse 27, he says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. In sons, he's speaking of the exorcists that had their exorcism ministries and they would go around and they would cast out demons. And he says, okay, if you're saying that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then what about all the exorcists, all the sons of yours that cast out demons? Don't they have to be working for Satan too? Let them be the judge. He's saying, go and ask them, who's giving them power to cast out demons? Surely they're going to say, God is giving them the power to cast out demons. So it's got to work both ways. If you're saying that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan, then everybody else that is casting out demons is working for Satan too. Duh, it doesn't make any sense. Then he says in verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. I love this. Okay, so everyone here, the multitudes, the Pharisees, Jesus, Everyone here is in agreement about something. That there is something or someone coming against the power of Satan. Someone or something is coming against the kingdom of Satan. Everybody's in agreement that demons are being cast out. The Pharisees are saying demons are cast out. Jesus is saying demons are cast out. The multitudes are saying demons are cast out. And Jesus is saying all the demons are gone. And who's standing in your midst? the son of David. I've done this by the spirit of God. And that's why he says this, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Look, no more Satan, no more demons. And what's standing right in front of you? The king of the kingdom. The, spirit, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's standing right before you. You could reach out and touch it if you would like but you gotta get past these lies that you're believing about my identity. And he attributes the power of his miracles to the Holy Spirit. There's only one power that's capable of casting out demons, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a transition into the next thing. So then either you accept the power and the work of the Holy Spirit or you deny it. But the Spirit of God works for the kingdom of God. So you, ex you accept the work of the Spirit of God and you enter into the kingdom of God. But if you're attributing that power to something else, we'll get into it in a few verses. There's a reason why he's communicating it like this. 
Or, verse 29, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and, he, and then he will plunder his house? Jesus is speaking about him versus Satan. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Basically what he's saying is, how can a strong man be bound and plundered? It can only happen if a stronger man comes in and binds him and then he can plunder his house. What Jesus is saying is, yeah, Satan's the strong man, but the spirit of God's in me. I'm the stronger man and I can come in and wreak havoc on Satan and plunder his house. It wouldn't make sense for a weaker man to come in and plunder the house of a stronger man. That wouldn't make sense. It would only make sense if a stronger man came and plundered the house of a strong man. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm doing this by the power of the spirit of the living God. I am stronger than Satan. I have the ability to bind Satan and I am here to plunder his house. Verse 30. And he says, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So you're either with Jesus or against Jesus. He draws the line in the sand again. He does this several times in scripture. You're either for me or against me. You're either, you either have the spirit of God. You're a part of the kingdom of heaven. You're a part of the power of the kingdom of heaven or you're under the power of the king of hell. It's one or the other. You get to be part of the power of the kingdom of heaven or you're under the God of this age, Satan, you're under his power, you're under his control, you're meditating on the lies that he's speaking to you. You choose which side are you on. Verse 31, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus says there's one sin that's absolutely, all the time, unforgivable, and it's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what does that mean? Let's look in context first. He says this a couple other times in Scripture. Um, In context, the... Pharisees are attributing the power of Jesus, the power of this miracle to Satan, when it was really the power of the spirit of the living God. So they're denying the power of the Holy Spirit. They're denying the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's look real quick. What is the main objective? What is the work of the spirit? You're going to have to follow me kind of on a little, little bit of a tangent, but I'll bring it back a bit in the end. If you look at John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus speaking of the helper, which is the Holy Spirit, he says, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. John chapter 15, verse 26, the work of the Spirit is to testify of the Son to point to the truth of who Jesus is, to point to the fact that Jesus is the Savior, he is the Messiah, and we're in need of him. Now look, stay in that same section. We'll be in John chapter 16. This is the process by which he, the helper, the Holy Spirit, does the work. In John chapter 16, verse 8, says, And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is how he points to Jesus. He convicts the world of sin, right? We didn't come to Jesus until we realized we were sinners and in need of a savior, right? That's where it starts. We're convicted of sin. We realize, wait, the way I'm living, it doesn't add up. I'm a sinner. Jesus wasn't. He was sinless. Convict the world of righteousness. This is the standard that needs to be attained for you to enter into the kingdom. You can't attain it. This righteousness, this level of righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven, you can't get there on your own. You have to be covered with the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. So at first we realize we're sinners in need of a savior, convicted of righteousness, the fact that we can't 
and he can, and we didn't, and he did. And then he says, look, and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteous because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world, Satan, is being judged. We're either with the ruler of this world or we're with the savior of this world. The choice is ours. Now let me wrap that up and kind of bring it together. So this is the work of the Spirit it's to point to the fact that we're sinners and we need forgiveness. We need, sa- we need a savior. The spirit is testifying of Jesus. So if we don't accept the work of the spirit and convicting us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, we're never gonna come to Jesus. Forgiveness can only happen if we have the Holy Spirit. And we can only have the Holy Spirit if we accept the Son, if we accept Jesus Christ, then we receive the Holy Spirit. So if we deny the work of the Holy Spirit, we're denying the only avenue, the only means by which we can be forgiven. That's why it's the only unforgivable, unforgivable sin. If we don't allow the Spirit, if we keep denying it, because you know you've been there. It's not like everybody came out of the womb saved, right? None of you did right? We all came to that place where we realized we were a sinner and we needed Jesus. That work was the work of the Spirit letting you know, hey, you're in trouble. This world is being judged. And if you don't recognize that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, then you're going to be judged with the ruler of this world. That's where the work starts. It's external. Then when we accept Jesus, it becomes internal. Then when we accept that work of the Spirit, we accept Jesus in our life, now we can be forgiven. So if we deny the work of the Holy Spirit, we never get the chance for forgiveness. This is why it's the only unforgivable sin. And we could talk about this for the whole teaching because there's a lot of connections to it and the other areas that Jesus addresses it, but that's the, the gist of it. So true believers, you cannot commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, okay? You can't blaspheme the Spirit because you've already accepted the work of the Spirit and pointing you to the fact that you need a Savior. Then he says, we read it, but he says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. He's speaking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are saying all kinds of stuff against Jesus. The only reason they're saying those things against Jesus is because the Spirit hasn't done the work in their lives and letting them know that that's their king. If they knew it was their king and they accepted that work in their lives, they wouldn't be saying anything bad about Jesus. So he says, I'm going to let these slide. You can say what you want about the Father. You can say what you want about the Son. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, if you deny the work of the Spirit, you won't be forgiven. Because once you receive the work of the Spirit, you're not going to say anything bad about the Son. You're not going to say anything bad about the Father. He knows. Till the Spirit does the work, say all you want about me. Because you're not going to understand the truth of who I am until the Spirit of truth reveals it to you. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Remember, he's just speaking about the Holy Spirit. And then he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. We are known by our fruit. Again, remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees in this context. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit but it all depends on your root. See, where your root is will determine what your fruit is. Okay, what you're rooted in. What are the Pharisees rooted in? They're rooted in legalism. They're rooted in man-made laws. They're not rooted in God's heart. Okay, so what's coming out of them? Pride, arrogance, they're accusing Jesus. They're lying about Jesus. They're believing lies about Jesus. And that's the fruit because... That's where their root is. It's rooted in their own man-made laws. Now, for us, good trees produce good fruit. If we're rooted in the word of God, if we're rooted in the spirit of God, good fruit's gonna come out. It's the fruit of the spirit. But what we're rooted in will determine what our fruit is. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, it says, brood of vipers. What is he saying right there? Vipers. He's saying you're of your father, the devil. Why? Because you're on his side. Because they're committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They're with the ruler 
of Satan because they're convincing people or attempting to that Jesus is doing this work by the power of Satan. They've chosen their side at this point, but Jesus bears along with them nevertheless. And look what he says. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. So Jesus very plainly, very simply says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of our mouths reveals the condition of our hearts, which brings me to the third and final point. Our words reveal our hearts. Our words reveal our hearts. The fact that the Pharisees are speaking evil of Jesus and falsely accusing him of doing these works by the power of Satan means that the condition of their heart is evil. Their thinking lies about Satan, which is changing the heart and allowing their heart to grow hard, which is turning into an evil, black, hardened heart, and it affects what comes out of their mouth. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know what's in someone's heart, just listen to what comes out of their mouth. And I'm not just saying what they say in a public setting, in the church setting. I'm sure no one's going to curse in here or say anything bad about the people next to you if they smell bad or they sing bad. None of you are going to say that in the church, but you might go home and say, dude, I was sitting next to Adam today, and oh my gosh, he must have not taken a shower in a few days. You wouldn't say that in the church, but when you go home, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know what's in someone's heart, just listen to what comes out of their mouth. Now, it's easier to understand this when you're in that private setting, when it's a friend or a family member. Because if they're speaking about carnal, material things, that's what's in their heart. If they're speaking about spiritual things, if they're speaking about the word, if they're speaking about Jesus, that's because that's where their heart is. Their heart is set on Jesus. That means Jesus is a part of their life. It's not just uh, a guy that they come to meet at a place. It's he's in there. He's in their hearts. You ever, you ever say something and like immediately regret it? Like you say something and it comes off real harsh. And you're like, oh, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean it like that. Ever say that? I didn't mean it like that. Maybe you did. Maybe you really did mean it like that. Maybe you saying what you said was just revealing to you what's really in your heart already. I, just, I do it sometimes. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't mean it. I, I didn't mean it to come out like that. That's not what was really in my heart. No, yep, Jesus says that's what's in your heart because it's coming out of your mouth and you just didn't realize what was in your heart. But now that it's coming out of your mouth, you know that there's something wrong with your heart and you can connect that back to the lies that you're thinking about in your mind. Maybe your heart is a little more wicked than you thought it was. Maybe when those things come out, you lash out at your wife or your husband or your brother or your sister or your friend and you just say this really mean thing. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean it. Yeah, you did. You did. Your heart meant it. So your heart needs to change and it's gonna change if you start meditating on truth and not the lies of the enemy. And he says, verse 36, but I say to you that for every idle word Men may speak, they will give account of it the day of judgment. Every word that comes out of our mouth, we're held accountable for. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees. I was just testing you. I know you guys are paying attention. He's speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, Look, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Okay. There's a phrase, there's some words that allow us to be justified. These are unbelieving Pharisees. It's Romans chapter 10, verse 9 to 10, that if you confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When we confess with our mouths, that connects to the belief in our heart, and by those words, you'll be justified. That's what he's trying to get across to the Pharisees. See, 
the multitude, they got it. They knew I, who I was, the son of David. At least they questioned it. At least they thought that I probably was or I might be. But if you don't confess, if you don't believe, if you don't realize the truth of who I am, you won't be justified. And if you don't speak those words that bring you to a place of being justified, you're not entering the kingdom of heaven. You're going to be with the ruler of this age that's being judged. And that's why he says, and by your words, you will be condemned. If you don't confess that, if you don't speak up about that, if you don't accept Jesus Christ, confess his name, then you will be condemned. See, Jesus is making it clear that there's a direct connection between our minds, our hearts, and our mouths. What we allow to come into our minds will affect our hearts and eventually will come out of our mouths. There's no hiding it. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, and do not be conformed to this world, because this world, there's a lot of things that this world, the ruler of this world wants to put into our minds that are lies that aren't true. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are our minds transformed? Well, they're transformed by the word of God, right? Our minds need to be washed by the water of the word. They need to be cleansed. They need to be purified. I have friends all the time back home that will say things like, dude, you're brainwashed. <laughs> bro, like, what are you, a monk now? Or are you going to be the next pope or something? Like, bro, you're, bra you're brainwashed. You know what I tell them? I am. My brain needed a good washing. It was filthy. It was disgusting. The things that I thought about, I shouldn't even talk about. My brain needed to be transformed. It needed to be washed by the water of the word. The lies needed to come out and truth had to be replaced in there because my heart, wicked, deceitful, the stuff that come out, came out of my mouth, regretful. But it goes back to the mind. Our minds need to be transformed and that's only going to happen if we're meditating on the truth of who Jesus is and the truth that he declares in the scriptures. Anyone ever have their mother wash her mouth out with soap? Yeah, me too. Horrible experience, right? Horrible. Who, would, who thought of such a thing? Come on. Washing a kid's mouth out with soap. My mom used to do it to me. It's effective. But really, when you think about it biblically, scripturally, we're just addressing the symptom. Jesus saying, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You're just addressing the words when it's really their heart that needs to be changed, and that's only going to change if they're meditating on the truth of the word of God. So wash them with the water of the word, and then you won't have to wash out their mouths with soap. Maybe you will occasionally. We're all a work in progress here. But we can't just address the symptom. We have to address the root. And the root is we're called to be rooted and grounded in the word of God. When we're meditating on the word day and night. Day and night. Think about that. I'm thinking about the word all the time. I'm thinking about Jesus all the time. I'm not saying I'm all, I always am. I'm saying that's what we're supposed to be doing. Right? I'm trying. I want to meditate on the word day and night because only then will my thoughts change. Only then will the lies that I used to believe be replaced with truth. Then my heart can change and then the things that come out of my mouth are edifying. They're uplifting. They're spiritual. They're not carnal. They're not giving people a reason to stumble. They're giving a people a, a greater reason to live a sold out life for Jesus. So let us be people. Jesus is trying to get to the minds of the Pharisees to, 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 to change the way they're thinking, to change their perspective so that they'd stop believing in lies because the lies of the enemy are leading them to hell. He wants them to know the truth so that the truth will set them free. We know the truth in the general sense. There's a lot of lies that we believe as believers. There are, there are things that we think and that we believe that aren't true. That's the enemy trying to put the veil back up, trying to blind us 
about who Jesus is and what his word actually says. And it's like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but the Bible. It's like, no, Jesus is the word of God. He's revealed himself through the scriptures. So what Jesus do you believe if you don't believe the Jesus that's been revealed through the Bible? It's not the Jesus that came and died on a cross 2,000 years ago so that we would be saved. It's a different Jesus. It's a different gospel. Paul says, hey, if you believe a different gospel, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let that man be accursed. Because so often in this world, in this time, the world is so corrupt, so, so powerful is the ruler of this world and the ruler of this age that he can believe, get us to believe these little lies that lead us down this little rabbit trail. And before you know it, we're not even walking with the Lord of the Bible. We're walking with the Lord that we've created in our minds. That's a lie. And that's what the problem with the Pharisees were. They were believing a lie. They thought Jesus was doing this work by the power of Satan. How ridiculous. We can look at that now and say, oh my gosh, that's so dumb. But we can fall into that on some level if we allow the lies of the enemy to creep into our minds. It will surely affect our hearts and it will be revealed by what comes out of our mouths. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for um, your truth, Lord. Pilate said, what is truth when you were standing right in front of him, God? The truth was right there, right in front of him. You said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Lord, you are the only way. You are the only truth. I pray that we would be people that would meditate on the truth of your word. God, that we wouldn't be caught up with the lies from the enemy, caught up with the ways of the world, that we would allow that to lead us to a place of wonder that we would wander off from the path that you've given us, the path to freedom, the path to you, God. Lord, give us minds to meditate on your word day and night and allow your word to transform our hearts and let us be people that speak up about the things that you're doing in our lives, the truth of who you are. In your name, amen.